Jesus potato, it's cold outside. Outside? Yeah, outside the house. Outside the house. I can't believe we're even recording over here today with the roads all iced over like this. Roads? You you just had to open the door. You you think that inside is all there is, don't you? And that when that door opens, it's just directly connected to where I and the rest of the crew live. It's not? <sighs> See, there's this thing called outside, and it's filled with trees, birds, grass, people. Only it sucks ass right now because of the polar vortex or some shit. Yeah, you're tearing me apart. My brain, it's hurting. Oh, damn it. There, there. Relax, Chris. I was I was just kidding. Of course, there's no such thing as outside. You mean it? Of course I do, little buddy. Did you bring beer? Here you go. All is forgiven. Welcome to another rudderless edition of Digital Noise right here on oneofus.net. This is the only Blu-ray DVD review podcast that is called Digital Noise and resides here at oneofus.net. Are you sure there's not another one? I'm pretty sure. I don't know. I might have to look this one up on Snopes. I mean, <laughs> we, we have gotten big enough to sometimes I am surprised like, oh, that's on our site? Oh, okay, cool. That's true. But uh, I'm pretty sure we're still the only digital noise on the site. Okay, fair. Well, I mean, like, with the title. With the title. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. I am your DVD-mented host, Brian Salisbury, and I am joined by a man who is never afraid to go blue, Christopher Lawrence Cox. Damn it, I was going to go with a feeling a little blue, but whatever. <laughs> whatevs, whatevs. You'll whatevs. make a horrible sex joke later, and everyone will figure out that it comes oh, full circle. Oh, I got mine all prepped and ready. <laughs> I realized I said, right after I said that, I said comes full circle, so you can, you can have that one. That was too easy. You can have that one. I do want to remind you that Digital Noise, just like all of our content on oneofus.net, is available on iTunes if you just search one of us in the podcast section. You can also follow this show directly on Twitter at DigiNoiseCast. That's D-I-G-I NoiseCast. And you can also become a subscriber. Wouldn't that be awesome? Imagine the possibilities. The possibilities. You can give $1 to $25 every month, or you can make a one-time donation. All of it helps to keep the lights on here and keep us delivering great content to you. And you never know. You, you start The more that, that starts coming in... The more kinds of crazy stuff we can do. We're already yeah. looking at lots of stuff we'd love to do and have the people to do. We just don't have quite all the equipment to do. Well, yeah. That money's getting funneled into that. True story. <laughs> True story. And another way you can support the site is by purchasing our commentaries. Watch a movie with us. It's uh, right there on the site. You can, right there in the midsection of the site, you'll see all the little windows of the movies we've done. And they're only $1.99, and you get to hear us crack wise and also wax geeky about our favorite movies. <laughs> Wax Geeky. You're Wax the first geeky. person who has ever said that. Am I? I think so. Yay! You, Balloon party! You, you should copyright it now. I should. I should <laughs> copyright it. Jesus. Uh, hell, that should be the name of one of our upcoming shows. <laughs> Wax, Wax Geeky. geeky. It's, it's just about wax figurines and Madame Tussauds. There's got to be like a really geeky group about that stuff. That's all I do is go to wax museums and fondle candles. That would actually be a great YouTube show if you went and did interviews at Madame Tussauds as if you were interviewing the real person. Jesus. And then you just kept getting more and more frustrated. And you do impressions of the people <laughs> standing behind them. Madame Tussauds is like right down the street, right? Uh, we totally live in Paris, right? Hmm. Hmm. There's one in LA too, for the record. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, we don't live there either. No, Damn it. we do not. 
<laughs> not sadly either. No, I'm uh, actually okay with that. There's also other alternatives you can buy. A t-shirt. We have lots of t-shirts on there. New t-shirts coming up soon, including one specific to Digital Noise. Hey, hey, hey. Uh, you can click on any of the links that are at the bottom of the page that are, are for the movies that we're reviewing today, and those links will send you to Amazon.com if you buy those movies or, in fact, anything else you buy anything. after getting to Amazon from our link – that gives us a little bit of a kickback, and those kickbacks definitely add up. Yeah. So we appreciate you. Even if you're just going to buy a new couch or something, you start from one of our links. We'd appreciate it. Definitely. Uh, and if you are buying in question one of the titles we suggested, please leave a comment on that Amazon page and say where you found out about this movie you really enjoyed was Digital Noise and One of Us.net. Any new traffic we can redirect back here does nothing but help you and help us. Indeed. Well, now it's time to reach out to the inner sphere and receive transmissions from you, the listener. It's the part of the show where we crack open that most questionable of coffers we call... The Letterbox. You've got mail. Yes, Torgo, thank you very much. The Letterbox, crawl back into your hole now. Uh, the first question comes from our good friend James Bausma. James B., a uh, very talented artist that we know. And he asks, what is your least favorite movie by your favorite director? That is an excellent question, and I cannot believe that in all these years of doing this, I don't remember anybody ever asking it. Yeah, I don't I don't remember this question either coming up. Um, uh, there's obviously lots of possibilities. Um, I, I, looking through all this, I was like, damn, I don't know which one to pick here for sure, but... I think I'm going to have to go with Cosmopolis by David Cronenberg. Oh, yeah. I, he is one of my favorite directors of all time. And certainly Cosmopolis is not the only one of his films that I don't think is top notch. But it's the only one of his films that I had to pry my eyelids open to keep awake through. It's just meandering and just pedantic. <laughs> and like, why did you what were you trying to prove by doing this? Yeah, it felt like there was a bet. Oh, I can do a movie like that. Yeah, and it's like usually when we get a bet in Hollywood, we end up with great films like Snakes on a Plane. <laughs> but in this case, somebody, uh, I bet you won't, ended up with Cosmopolis. And yeah, no, you're right. It, I, by the end of it, I was like, I think I know what you're trying to say because you're, you know, oversimplifying it and hitting us over the head with it, but that can't possibly be what you're actually trying to say, could it? And then by the end of the film, it was like, oh, that, that, I guess That's that is exactly all you were trying what to say. You were trying to say. And, and you had to get Robert Pattinson to do it? Seriously? Yeah. Okay. Very, bad, very disappointing. Bad call. Uh, for me, I gotta go with Bullet to the Head. Uh, Walter Hill is one of my favorite directors of all time. Things like 48 Hours and The Warriors and The Driver. And I mean, just the, even Last Man Standing is a movie I really, really like from the 90s with Bruce Willis. But it just seemed like he, all of the life had been sucked out of him by the studio system. And what we were seeing is like a pale imitation of someone who had maybe seen a Walter Hill movie once. <laughs> And and yet it was in fact Walter Hill behind the camera, and that that was really really disappointing to me. And it's probably why I disliked the movie as much as I did, is because I felt like it had the potential to be something really cool because they had Walter Hill, and they just kind of squandered it. Yeah, that's a good answer. Um, some of my runner-ups were Hereafter by Clint Eastwood, which I thought of a steadily declining trend of films from Clint Eastwood in his elderly years. Sadly, I wish that wasn't true, but it, for me, it just has been. Hereafter was definitely the low water mark for me. I'm just like, seriously, dude, what the fuck are you doing? This yeah. is, this is just garbage. Uh, Tideland by Terry Gilliam. He said, not everything he's done has been great. Certainly other people like to point at the Brothers Grimm, but at least the Brothers Grimm is fun to watch. Tideland is just, 
what the fuck were you trying to achieve here? This movie is like, I just wanted, I, like half hour in, I almost left, walked out of the theater. And that's where a Terry Gilliam film. And the last one, of course, is Eyes Wide Shut by Stanley Kubrick, which may have had a lot to do with the fact that he wasn't done editing it at the end. A lot of people say, oh, it was just like color correction. But if you know anything about Stanley Kubrick, you know he tended to spend years in post. Mm-hmm. So the odds are we would have gotten a very different movie. Oh, if, definitely. If he had actually lived to do that that procedure as it is it's just i i just thought it was mind-numbing yeah and my runner-up of course would be anything any film from about 1995 on from john carpenter yeah yeah ghosts of mars we're looking at you ghosts of mars like i don't understand how you remake your own remake of another film and you fuck it up yeah like it was just him remaking assault on precinct 13 which was in and of itself a remake of rio bravo it's like, is it just like a copy of a copy starts to look shitty? Like, yeah, I don't it's understand. like multiplicity, yeah. <laughs> I was wondering why Jason Statham comes out and goes, hey, Steve. <laughs> it makes sense now. I, I get guess. it. You get it? Okay. I'm starting to put the pieces together on that. Uh, we also had a question from Carson Downing who asked, if you had the money to craft your own home theater setup, what are two things that you would do or install to make it distinctly yours and awesome as hell? Well, actually, if you look around online, you'll see a lot of these personalized type, like, rooms. And it's hard to say which one. I mean, would you go with the Batcave? Right. Would you go with Hoth? That's one of the coolest ones I've seen. Oh, yeah, that uh, is badass. You know, I mean, there's so many different options. But I would surely pick at least one of those. I, I really don't know which one yet. Maybe, probably Star Trek The Next Generation ship would be what I would go for. Something like that. Where you had options where you could turn on all the computers when the lights come on. They all go, and the sounds come up, and it starts looking like the bridge. Yes. That would be awesome. The other thing, of course, would be a vacuum-attached uh, 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 flesh, a flashlight that you can just reach into a little section on the side of your chair and pull it out and use it, and then it just sucks up all the remains, and you're done. No mess, no fuss, just easy like that. Good. I'm really glad. See, I told you you weren't afraid to go blue. Uh, for me, I would definitely, like, my chair in the home theater room would look like the space jockey from Alien. I would, I would go completely, you know, Geiger with it, and it would just be, like, this weird sort of half-dead alien thing in a chair, and I'd be like, ooh, this is my seat, and everybody would be like, what the fuck is wrong with that guy? Uh, and then I would have, on the walls, there would be poster frames that I could actually hit a button, and the poster would change. Like, it would, it would like, cycle out to a new poster, and then when the movie started, I could hit another button, and since there'd be lights on these poster frames, they would all, like, shut off immediately. That's cool. Yeah. Although, I'm losing track of all the things that would be in your house that are influenced by Alien at this point. Yeah. You're going to need a Geiger counter. Geiger counter, kaboom, 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 <laughs> We are a very punny show, absolutely. That's a good. That's a good pair of questions, guys. Thank you very much. We're gonna go ahead and uh, slam shut the letterbox lid for another week, and thank you again for your questions. Now, as is customary, it's time to dive into the reviews. And once more, anything you see uh, that we talk about, you'll see Amazon links to it. If you want to buy that thing or anything. Go ahead and click on our Amazon link to get there, and we will get a cut of that purchase. We really appreciate it. We love it when that happens. We do. And let's set sail with Captain Phillips. Now sit right back and you'll hear a tale. Hear a tale of Tom Hanks, as he did practically nothing while pirates destroyed his ranks. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. I was going to go with Captain Phillips. He's our hero. Going to take piracy down to zero. (laughs) Although... He didn't really he didn't do, do anything. So it's a lie. The movie's really a lie if you think about it like that. You know, they called it an action thriller, and there's certainly action elements to it, but only on the part of the bad guys, really. Like, on the mm-hmm. whole, there's not a lot of, like, 
I mean, if you go into it expecting, like, under siege, you're going to be disappointed. Yeah. <laughs> this is, nobody is going to kill anybody with, like, a butcher knife thrown across a, a, a room. That's just not going to happen. It, instead of schlubby, you know, Steven Seagal with a ponytail, it's schlubby Tom Hanks, Tom Hanks with, a, yeah. with a goatee. Who, so. Of course, this is based apparently somewhat loosely, but I don't really know the, the, the differential. Yeah, did you, do you remember hearing about this when it happened? Because I feel like I was on another planet. I, I didn't hear about this at all when it happened. It so. was in 2009. I just, I feel like I completely... Like, I had been hearing about Somali piracy on the rise, but sure. I completely missed this particular story. Uh, but in this particular story, Tom Hanks is in command of the uh, MV Maresk, Alabama, an unarmed container ship uh, with orders to sail through uh, b- basically kind of dangerous waters right near around the Horn of Africa. I mean, warned about pirate activity, but really, like... It was one of those – I guess it was one of those things like nobody really thought that they were going to try and take something that big. Well, clearly the company didn't because there's not a single weapon on board. It's like go through pirate waters, but uh, you have no way to protect yourself. It's, it's weird. I kept thinking that apparently there's an argument for insurance reasons for not having lots of guns on board, which is like, okay, I think you could probably start to look at that as getting a little silly at this I, I think you could make the argument that for insurance reasons, not having guns on board is probably a worse idea. They, they have lots of alternative things like – giant hoses all around the side of the thing to, to like keep them off but as we see that doesn't really work all that great shocking uh, how the super soakers all over the ship don't really hold off the pirates ultimately the somalis find them chase them get on the ship and hanks is in a position where he has to as the captain take a lot of personal responsibility for the ship and his crew in dealing with these pirates and he certainly makes some brave decisions in that sense it's just not what i would call action per se no no no, no. more of it is him kind of like I guess, martyring himself for his crew. And I don't mean that in a like, oh, what a martyr. I mean, like, no, literally, like, putting himself in a position. It's like, no, it's me you want, not them. Leave them alone. Yeah, it's more of a suspense film, really, than an action thriller, because we spend the whole movie wondering how he's going to get out of this situation and what's going to happen. It would have helped if the news stories weren't, they weren't marketing this with, uh, based on a true story and the book by the guy who survived that See, I I missed that part. So (laughs) at this whole movie, I actually didn't know if he lived or died. Okay. I somehow I don't know how this story kept evading my consciousness even after the movie came out, but right. Uh, I don't know. I, I guess that took a lot of the suspense away from me. I, can I was see like, how well, he's gonna make it. So yeah. at this point, it's just kind of waiting to, for the rest of this film to play out, and it's kind of divided into three part three acts, like most films are. You've got the first act with just the guys on the ship getting to know the characters, afraid that there are pirates on their tail, and trying to figure out what they'll do if they show up. Second act is the pirates. The, the attack by the pirates Yo-ho. on the ship. And the third act is the one I think most people pointed at is the, the really the clincher for this film, but the one that honestly kind of dragged it down for me outside of a terrific performance by a supporting actor, uh, nominee Barkhad Abdi, uh, the pirate leader. Who has never been in a film before. Tom Hanks is trapped in a very small confined space with three pirates. And, <sighs> Like I said, it just, it was that point. You're like, we know he lives. Get on with it for me. Mm-hmm. And I realized it was very tense for most people. Maybe they didn't know he lived and that's why it was more tense. Maybe it was more tense for you. Yeah. But I just, I, I mean, I think every, it's one of those you go, you look at all its parts and you go, Hey, everybody's doing great. Everything seems to be fine. There's nothing I can really specifically criticize here except ultimately. I guess I was, you know, outside of going like, yeah, he's, there's no question he's a hero, at least in the context of this version of the story. He should be lauded for his actions, but it just wasn't that exciting for me to watch. I, you know, it's funny. I actually really enjoyed the film, but even enjoying it, recognized that with the year we've had, this wouldn't even make my top 10. Uh, as, as 
completely well-constructed as it was, dynamite performances, uh, some really great cinematography, although I have a problem with the way Greengrass shoots some of the more tense scenes because he likes to use multiple cameras at once, and some of those cameras are apparently attached to Michael J. Fox riding on a washing machine that's oh, out of balance. See. I'm sorry, but it's like, dude, hold still. Just just for five... I had the same problem with the Bourne Supremacy. No, no, no. He, he, they, yeah, he's, uh, he definitely has issues with the way he shoots. So. And, and, and But beyond that, action, I thought, like, yeah. you know, the, the wide establishing shots were really beautiful. I thought the score was great, and there was a lot about it that I found to be tense, and again, probably because I didn't know for sure whether Captain Phillips lived or died. Um... I, I think the moments actually where, t- where Tom Hanks is best in this film is after everything is over, which was really interesting to me. Like, after ever, everything's kind of been resolved and he's on the ship being cared for by the, uh, like, the Navy nurse, like, when he is having so much trouble just keeping it together when he's answering simple questions, I was like, there's something very authentic about that. There's something yeah. very true to life about just, just, like, basically just asking him, like, are you okay? What happened to your head? And he's just... He's so overwhelmed by what happened that he just can't hold it together anymore. Yeah, he was holding it together during the circumstance, but when it comes down to it, like that point where it's over, you just, the humanity is there. I mean, you, that's, you, you can finally let yourself just be human mm-hmm. <laughs> and he just falls apart and it's, it's really touching to see. And one of the reasons Hanks is being lauded for this role in here as well. It's, it's a, it's a difficult balance of a part to pull out mm-hmm. to be sure. Well, and I also like that they got Greengrass, who is a British filmmaker, to do this story of an American ship under siege by pirates. Because, as he says, in the, there's some great, if you guys get this Blu-ray, there's some great behind-the-feature stuff that's really eye-opening. Yeah, and almost an hour of uh, uh, called Capturing Captain Phillips. Well, it, was, it was fantastic. And one of the things he said is that, you know, there have been British ships attacked by Somali pirates, and those stories don't have happy endings. So it was it was really interesting to me that they got a British filmmaker... To tell this story of an American ship attacked by pirates that does have a, a spoiler that does have a happy ending, because it kept the movie from seeming jingoistic to me. Hmm. It kept the movie from seeing overly bent toward one side or the other. And in fact, he kind of makes a case for why it's the conditions in Somalia that are leading to the rise in piracy. More, you know, he's not he's not necessarily painting the pirates as bad people. Like, and that and that, you know, I, and I can completely understand people having a problem with that too. But at the same time, I like how balanced the film is. It doesn't seem like it has a particular agenda one way or the other. Well, largely, the, I, I wouldn't. I don't even go so far to say there's agenda. I mean, Somali pirates, like and piratism, is bad. It is bad, period. absolutely. But they they create these pirates as more than just you know they're just the bad guys. They actually give them a little bit of depth that they're poor, really poor people who've been doing this for a while because they don't have any choice. There are warlords who are forcing them to do this. Yeah, it's like the warlords are like, you owe me this much money, so go, at, go get a... Like, their only option is to go steal a ship. Right. Uh, like I said, makes them a lot more interesting and certainly led to that fine performance uh, by the best uh, supporting actor, Barkid Abdi. I think he got the nomination, didn't he? Yes, he did. Okay. Uh, as well-deserved, because it was just... He, he, to me, was the most interesting thing about this film. And that has a lot to do with a... a a script that gives him the opportunity to show that that side of these pirates. They, yeah. They're still human. They're really frightened. Yeah. And, <laughs> and I mean, there's a lot of things that you learn as you watch the special features on this that are just, again, just a testament to how great a director Paul Greengrass is. One of the things he did is he didn't let Tom Hanks or the other actors meet the, the actors playing the Somali pirates until that scene where they come busting in to take over the bridge. Right. So their literal first introduction of these actors is when they're wielding AK-47s. You didn't say they were going to be black. 
And, <laughs> and there's this, actually this great story. One of the other actors says that after this incredibly, like, it was a pot boiler in that room even, like, cause these guys who we knew they were actors, but they were still wielding guns. We'd never met them before. And he thought they were going to continue with that tension. And then as soon as Greengrass yelled cut, he said, Tom Hanks is like, Hey guys, welcome to the movie. So nice to meet you. And he's like, well, okay, well, I guess we're done with that emotion for now. <laughs> cause Tom Hanks is just the perennial nice guy. Yeah, Tom Hanks, like sweetest guy on the planet. You're like, what are you going to do? Yeah. It's like he's probably playing Disney at the same time, so he's, he's a little confused. <laughs> I am just so happy to meet you. Let's make Mary Poppins. And they're like, what the fuck are you talking about? We just got that movie yesterday. Um, but yeah, and the other thing they did that was really cool is they actually filmed this movie on the sister ship of the real ship from the story. Oh. So this wasn't a set. This wasn't a soundstage. They were actually on not only a ship, but the ship that was designed exactly like the one from the story. By the same company, it was it was literally the sister ship. So it was it was pretty incredible just to hear about the the lengths that Greengrass went to to make the movie as authentic as possible. The only real shame about this film is that uh, the gay porn version is already written into the title, Captain Phil Lips. Just saying. I feel like I feel like we did this. Not not you and me, but I feel like on a, like a commentary we talked about that the uh, Captain fill him up or something. I don't remember. Anyway, yes, there is a porn version, I'm sure, of Captain Phillips. <laughs> well, it could be a straight porn where it's a female captain, I'm just saying. It could be. It, I, it absolutely could be. Yeah. Because that's that's what we should be talking about with this Oscar-nominated <laughs> film. We're good at what we do. You know what? Not everybody wants to hear everybody being all serious and shit about everything. That's true. We're here to be irreverent. That's quite true. Yeah, I, I mean, overall, I, I thought this film was, uh, was captivating. I thought they did a lot of things right. I mean... If I had any problems with it, it was just sort of uh, a few cinematography choices, and there were a couple beats that didn't quite work for me. But overall, yeah, I was very impressed with it. But still, with the year that we had, wouldn't have made it in my top ten. Yeah, it, this wouldn't have made it in my top ten, even if I had liked it as much as you did, which, and sadly, I just didn't. I think there's a lot, like, there's nothing specifically wrong in this film. I didn't even really have so much a problem with the cinematography uh, problem, editing and editing, editing that you did, I, I don't mind Greengrass as much with that sort of thing. In fact, I always thought with the Bourne films, he stood in stark contrast to the first Bourne, which was directed by... Uh, Doug Liman, I think. Doug Liman, who I thought did a much worse job with those editing in the act of the action scenes. Oh, I feel like the second one is where it really gets shaky. And plus, this one is on the sea. So it's like not only is Lyman just like, yeah, just hold the camera as best you can. Not but Lyman. then like the waves are like bobbing up and down. Not Lyman. Yeah, it's Doug Lyman. What, who did the cinematography for Captain Phillips? Oh, what did I say? No. Greengrass. <laughs> Who's talking? What? It got very confusing. Is that voice in my head? Stop whispering! All right, uh, we're okay. Uh, uh, like I said, it's a good film that I think perhaps is a bit overrated. That That's from my take on it. I don't know. You're wrong! I could wow. be. I don't know. It's like, I'm not, I'm not so over the moon for this film that I even feel the compunction to argue with you about that. I'm just like, <laughs> okay, sure. <laughs> I, I, I know just people get so excited. People like walking out of the theater crying. I was like, really? I, I got a little choked up, but again, it was that one moment at the end. What I probably should have been feeling the whole movie, it was that one moment at the end where I actually did feel like a little lump in my throat just watching, uh, yeah. Captain Phillips like try and keep it together. After he'd done such a great job, in the worst possible situation of, of keeping his composure. It's like all of a sudden when it was over, it was like he was allowed to be a person again. And that really, that struck me. 
I agree. That's the most emotional part in the whole film. But for me, that's the only part that I got that I felt emotional about. Mm-hmm. And that's only because I can identify having known what it's like to fight off pirates for like hours at a time yeah. and then finally being like, oh, God, I can't believe that's done. Is it just me or were you expecting, you know, Captain Jack Sparrow to show up at some point? What kind of Pirates of the Caribbean sequel is this? I was surprised that he didn't end up washed up on an island at the end was my, my take <laughs> on it. I was like, what kind of movie? What kind of prequel is this? Fun bit of trivia, the uh, the actual uh, pirate commander that, that laid siege to this ship, do you know where he's in prison right now? No. Terre Haute, Indiana. That's right near where you were living. That is, that is pretty close to where I grew up. Wow, is that a, is that a Supermax there? I, I didn't think it was, but apparently, like I knew Marion was. Uh, was Marion in Illinois or Indiana? Anyway, there's there's definitely one there, and there was one in uh, near Mount Vernon where my parents actually grew up that... Look like it, it definitely a maximum security, but I I didn't think Terre Haute was a supermax, but now I got to look into that shit. Huh. Of course, I've never been there, I guess, which is a good thing. You will be someday. You will be someday where they send pirates and bloggers <laughs> to Terre Haute Supermax Prison, where we belong. People who promote ideas like freedom. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, which one of us is in jail for that? I don't know anymore. <laughs> They, they just keep me under house arrest, and I wouldn't know the difference. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I just wouldn't go outside. Oh, really? I, I have to stay here and watch movies? That's, okay. That's horrible. Oh, unknowable universe. Course, that being said, if they cut off my internet access, that's lock and load. Dude, I was without internet yesterday for like seven hours, and I, I felt like Jack Torrance. <laughs> I was just like hand scrawling in crayon over the walls, all work and no play, all work and no play. Or it was like, wait, I can't actually work, so I'm just going to drink, and this is actually getting to be too long of a note, so how are you? And it was just like, if you read the whole thing, it looks even more demented. Wow. Yeah. That's... Let's next movie! Next movie! <laughs> it's about time we talk about our next movie, so let's talk about About Time. I see what you did there. See what I did there? You used the word about to cross into the other thing that's i do that professional kids pay attention i do that time and time again that's professional (laughs) this is the last film directed well supposedly at least just directed although he's going to continue to write and work in the industry by legendary romantic comedy director richard curtis now i know that sounds weird legendary romantic comedy director but let's face it there aren't a lot of directors who are great specifically at doing that and are known for doing that. And you so, can't argue with Curtis. Like pedigree. Billy Wilder is yeah. a great example of something. Yeah, oh yeah, absolutely. Terrific romantic comedies. Richard Curtis, that's his, his shtick. I would also the, put Frank Capra in that. Yeah, Frank Capra as well. Uh, that's his shtick, but modern day, he's really the only one who seems to be any good at it, quite frankly. And he's done it, proved it with movies like Four Weddings and a Funeral, Notting Hill, Bridget Jones Diary, Love Actually, uh, not so much the Mr. Bean movies. I don't know what was going on there. But uh, uh, we do know those exist, and that is the only thing we can say. But like the last of these films that he's going to direct, because he says he wants just wants to spend more time with his family, and you know, honestly, his writing is his best quality anyway. Is about time. About time is odd, considering that he calls it the most realistic of any of his film films. But if you've watched his other films, you'll go, okay, I guess in a sense it is, yeah. uh, since they're all just fantasies about love. It's. A time travel fantasy, uh, featuring, uh, God, I've never seen this guy at all. Dom, Dom Hall Gleason? Did you recognize him from anything? No, I thought Dom Hall was a bad scrabble hand. I didn't know it was an actual name. Uh, he's a, about as Irish a guy as you get. <laughs> Dominal. Uh, he was Bill Weasley in Harry Potter. Oh, okay. Which is yep. why I didn't really recognize him because he's kind of in and out of those films. He, yeah. 
but he discovers at 21 that he can travel in time. His father, played by Bill Nye, gotta love Bill Nye, who, who's appeared in quite a few of uh, Richard Curtis's films, tells his son the men in his family have always had this ability. Upon learning this, he goes back to the night of a New Year's Eve party just recently where he was too shy to kiss someone and goes for the kiss instead. So this, anyway... As it becomes clear, like, okay, this is something that's not hard for him to do. Like, I mean, it's not like it's, he's got to go and build a DeLorean or something. He just has to stand in a closet and, and, and. It's your kiss! We gotta talk about that kiss! And hold his, squeeze his hands and think about where he wants to be and then he's there. But of course, there's a series of rules. Uh, as explained by his father are, one, only male members of the family can travel in time. Two, only backwards travel in time is possible. Three, you cannot travel back to before you were born. And four... Don't expose it to sunlight. No. Don't get it wet. But that could have come... Don't time travel after midnight. That could have come later. I don't know. There's a lot of weird rules here, a little arbitrary ones. It says, uh, take traveling back to a time before your child was born will cause a different child to be born. What? And the original child will be lost, so you probably don't want to do that. What the like what? Kid. It's like the Etch-A-Sketch of children. If you go back too far, you just kind of shake it and they have to start over. But Don't shake a child. I mean, I agree that this is there's a certain arbitrariness about these rules, and there's certainly not hard and fast. Uh, one, I was, there's one critic really cracked me up. Where they said something like, uh, uh, Curtis sets up his rules of temporal engagement only to break them willy-nilly whenever the prospect of an extra hug rears its head. <laughs> Which is, okay, that's true. I'm not going to say it's not true. <laughs> but the story is so fucking charming and funny and cute and filled with, like, good character actors. I mean, eventually it becomes a love story about Dom Hall Gleason and Rachel McAdams, who is right now the queen of the meet-cutes. And certainly, and the... God, this poor girl's all she does is date time travelers. She has dated, <laughs> seriously, she has, she has dated three different male time travelers. Wait a minute, I have to look career. up in the notebook the other movies. Time traveler's she... wife, uh, Midnight in Paris. Yes. Yep. Okay, got it. <laughs> That's got all it. she does yep. is date time travelers. That is correct. <laughs> uh, I actually had a lot of fun throughout this. I do think it's really funny. If you're willing to say, look, this isn't the kind of film that's trying to it's not really a time travel movie in sense of like wow time travel it's a romantic comedy movie about looking back with regret on the decisions we make about going ahead and just you know learning from your mistakes and moving on rather than worrying about trying to fix what's already happened i mean there's a lot of cool life lessons in this movie quite frankly if you can get past the fact that it doesn't take its time travel premise seriously at all i'm squeezing my fist really hard to see if i can go back in time and do what? I want to go back to the original premiere of Star Wars. Why would you do that? Because it was before it was fucked with. I, I, I want to see it in a theater you, before it was fucked with. You, you can. You just ask one of the Any Cool News guys. They all have, like, really pink prints of it, I think. <laughs> no, they don't. Nobody I, does. I would like to go back to the early print of Star Wars, early days of Star Wars, to buy all the Star Wars merchandise. Yes. Put it in a safe. <laughs> and then come back to now. And, NRFB. And sell it for a fucking fortune. Oh, all right. Well, we got a we got a time travel plan to work on now, and probably buy a lot of Apple stock. I really thought you were going to say apple pie, and I was no. like, you know, that doesn't appreciate in value over time, right? No. Well, it depends. <laughs> Unless it's stomach. McDonald's apple pie, then it just it stays exactly the same. I don't for know. Thirty years. I know this got a lot of criticism, but I think it's one of those films that, regardless of, you know, you can pick it apart. Absolutely. There's no question. And if you don't come to this ready, you know, wanting to see a charming little romantic comedy, that's probably what you're going to sit there and do. But Richard Curtis, as always, is just so good at making completely likable and very human characters of writing to just the best meet-cutes in the industry about 
having great and funny dialogue. I just didn't care about the things that went wrong. This is one of those like, hey, say what you will. This was the most charmed I was by anything I saw in the theater this year. So did you get to see this? I actually didn't, but I know Elliot raved about it because it's one of the four movies that he's seen. (laughs) He's now he's seen more. He's seen. I'm so happy that he's doing reviews because it means he's actually seeing movies. Yeah, he's actually he was telling me like a like, oh, God, now I need to can I borrow like important films and stuff? (laughs) I was like, I feel like I need to get a history. I'm like. We're educating him through the process of being a reviewer. It's actually quite uh, There's extra features here. There's a commentary with Richard Curtis and several of the cast members. Deleted scenes, about 15 minutes worth. A blooper reel, which are always fun from uh, uh, Richard Curtis films, although sadly this is only about uh, three and a quarter minutes long. Apparently he runs a fun set, is what I've been told. Uh, look at uh, the music. Apparently, like, the end song is a Ben Fold song, but it's not... To, I, I didn't realize this, but it's not... to till it happens that you realize, wow, that has actually been a, that music and its chorus has been a leap motif all the way through this film's like mm. score, uh, which is an interesting decision to do with a pop yeah. song. Uh, and then there's a music video for some shit that I don't care about. So <laughs> good. <laughs> oh, good. there's, oh, there's actually, if you get on Blu-ray, there's a thing about time travel, which is not a featurist that, that talks about where Curtis got the idea of time travel. Uh, uh, from the, Jules Verne. I, no, specifically <laughs> the look style and locations and a whole and a vi- all too short look three, like almost four minute look at the world of Richard Curtis. Since it was like I said, his last film as a director, you'd think they would have put like, a you know, maybe an actual bi episode of biography or something on yeah. here. I don't know. But, or inside the director studio. But either way, I think this is one of those films that is not going to be painful for you to watch with your girlfriend. So you should check it out. So he's retiring like Soderbergh, like he's taking the Soderbergh route. Well, I mean, who knows the degree to which Soderbergh's still involved in film. I'm not sure. I'm sure he'll still be producing and shit like mm-hmm. that. Maybe even writing, but he said in the beginning, I'm just not directing. It's like, I fully intend on continuing to write. Uh, I just don't want to direct anymore. Fair enough. Yeah. Well, enough said about about time. So now it's about time. We talk about enough said. Uh, yeah, that's a palindrome. That's a palindrome segue. You're welcome. Palindrome-esque, perhaps. Palindrome-esque, yes. Uh, this is sadly the last film uh, for James Gandolfini. Not because he retired from acting. He retired from... The Mortal Coil. Heart beating. Yeah. Um, it's, man, that really sucks. Like, I... I am a huge, huge, huge fan of The Sopranos, and I have, I have really enjoyed watching over the last... Uh, maybe three or four years, it seems like James Gandolfini has had a resurgence as a film actor. And I've liked him. Even in movies I didn't particularly like, I have liked him. And I was really looking forward to, you know, seeing what else he was in. And I'm, I'm, there is another film that he's in that is completed that hasn't been released yet. It's called The Drop. But this is pretty much, like, considered to be, like, the last uh, James well, Gandolfini. This is the last one where he played the the... the- primary role i believe yes i think i think that is correct uh and it's it's nice because it's a real character piece it gets him a ch- it gives him a chance to stretch his wings to play a role in like you did in the past and once again prove that he had a lot more going to him than just the gangster exactly Something that like films like welcome to the rileys which i thought was a terrific movie that he was in absolutely even let Kristen stewart prove that she, she could do more than pout which is miraculous in yeah. and of itself all i can think is that director must be amazing yeah <laughs> uh but enough said it's i i think it was being pushed a lot for things because of the sympathy that people had, the, the sadness when we realized we really did lose a great actor in James Gandolfini, more so than this is an absolutely terrific film. It's a good film. It's a it's cute a film. film. It's one of those little indie films you might stumble across on Netflix or something and go, hey, that was charming. I liked that. But probably wouldn't go buy a copy for your mom or anything <laughs> or rave yeah. about on Facebook. 
Uh, this also stars Julie, Julie, ah, Julia Louise Dreyfus, who you probably know from Seinfeld and more recently from the really terrific Veep. show Veep. So funny. Uh, it's also got Tony Collette, Catherine Keener, Ben Falcone, and Toby Huss. The, the story here is basically Julie Louise Dreyfus, who is basically the main character. She is the main character here. She's a professional masseuse who divorced her husband years ago, but she's at a party and, uh, she meets not only this self-described poet, played by Catherine Keener, Marianne, who's, uh, you know, very successful. And she's like the only poet in the world who's successful, which she does, apparently. Who's the, not dead and being taught today. in ninth grade. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Uh, and then she also meets a guy who she says right from the beginning is totally not her type, this overweight, balding guy, played by James Gandolfini, Albert. But lo and behold, they actually start to become friends and then start dating. With complications, but dating and enjoying each other's comp- company. The problem arises when it turns out that uh, her new friend, Catherine Keener, that she's going regularly and giving massages to, turns out to be she's the ex-wife of James Gandolfini, and she's been listening to her talk shit about him and him talk shit about her without ever realizing these were the same two people. Yeah. And thus, the kind of complications occur when you... Basically, let your opinion be affected by what other people say about someone without knowing them personally. Yeah, and that's that's certainly a problem, uh, as, as as we've experienced in the past. But um, but yeah, no, that's I actually really enjoyed this movie because there was a lot of the sort of falsity that we've seen in in numerous romantic comedies that stripped away, and this felt very genuine. Like I I really believed. Uh, not only did I believe that these two could meet and, and fall in love and have a relationship, but just the dialogue, just the, the things that they were saying each other to each other made a lot of sense and didn't feel forced for the sake of, of you know, motivating a story along that didn't quite work. No, it was it was a very strong story and a very uh, believable dialogue, very genuine dialogue. And I enjoyed, through the process of that, getting to know these characters. And I think that's what made the characters so... Uh, indelible to me is I felt like they were real people and what was happening to them wasn't just, you know, Hollywood falsity. I, I generally agree with you. I will say, though, some of the more comedic aspects of this relied on old tried-and-true cringeworthy comedic situations where someone finds themselves in something incredibly uncomfortable and has to their way out of something, especially Julia Louise Dreyfus. I mean, I know the moment you're talking about, but like even that felt more real to me than like the entirety of that being played out in Meet the Parents. Like, because Meet the Parents is a movie that exists just to do that joke 30 times. Well, that's because Meet the Parents is a collection of set pieces, not Mm. really a movie. This this is actually a story about two people and the mistakes that can happen that we all are capable of making that are easy traps to fall into Mm -hmm. that can break apart friendships or even what could have been meaningful love affairs. Yeah. Well, I mean, you get to that, what I've always called the romantic MacGuffin in the film where it's like that point where it's like there's either a misunderstanding or a complication that suddenly the people that you've liked seeing together are apart and we're just waiting for them to get back together. The romantic MacGuffin in this film was one that I totally bought. One that I was like, not only do I, I believe this situation, but I kind of feel for both of them. There's not a situation like you see in like a Kate Hudson film or, you know, one of Sandra Bullock's romantic comedies where you're just like, if one of you would stop being a fucking moron, this would be entirely over. But I felt like there was, there was like a genuine, uh, there was a genuine reason for both of them to feel the way they did and to be in the situation they were. And it's like, yes, it's communicating a character flaw. 
but not a, a writing problem. It's yeah. not communicating a, a lack of ability to cr- construct characters on the page. Uh, they're both very likable, very real people. And this is definitely a, not a movie for younger people because I think no. they're quite frankly just going to be bored by the fact that it's Probably. not all leading up to big jokes. Uh, this is about mature relationships, you know, like when you get older looking for relationships and negotiating that field and yet still making all too human mistakes along the way. Yeah. And, you know, learning how to be human about those as well. I did really enjoy it on that level. Like I said, my biggest criticism of this is just that it's a, it's kind of slight in and of itself. Uh, I mean, it is. There's nothing about it that's not doesn't feel feel completely true, but it's a little slice of life in its own way. Yeah. Uh, and that I thought Julia Louise Dreyfus, while not doing a bad job at all, doesn't have the acting chops of James Gandolfini, and I really felt that at points during this film that she just felt like you could have cast a little better than her for a role that's more drama than it is comedy. Interesting. That's no, how I felt. No, no, no. I mean, that, I, I can see that. I, definitely the slight thing. Yeah, it's, it's, it's over and done with before you really know it. But it doesn't. But at the same time, it doesn't feel uh, like you've been cheated. Like it, it no. doesn't get to the end, and you're like, really? That's it? What about the resolution? You it, know, it feels like a lesser, not in the not in the style of humor, but a, like in the way that the lesser but still good Woody Allen films are yeah. the ones you don't remember, but then somebody brings up. It's like, oh yeah, I remember liking that one. It's like one of those movies. Sure. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree. It's, it's very brief, but I think in the moments that we do get with these two, with these two characters, these two actors, I think there's a lot to be gleaned there that's, uh, that's very interesting. Yep. There's a bunch of promotional featurettes in here. They're basically EPK type of stuff. And then a gag reel, which is cool. Um, man, it's just so sad to be, have James Gandolfini gone. He really was great. And I gotta tell you, I, I've even said before in reviews of his other movies that I was worried about his health because the way he breathed so heavy that even the editor couldn't take it out. Yeah. I mean, like his breathing was so, I mean, I can only imagine this guy has wake apnea. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I was like, something's wrong with that guy. Uh, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a damn shame. It's a real shame. Yeah. Like such a, such a good actor and, and iconic as hell. For the 2000s, you know, just yeah. like a yeah, defining actor. Yeah, he's one of he's one of the, you're right. He's one of the faces that defines that that the early millennial type of entertainment in general. Absolutely. Well, that was enough said, and now we're gonna move on to cat people. Cat people. Aw, a sweet film about people and their cats who love each other and have wonderful time at home on the couch, stroking and petting and gradually drifting off to sleep. Look like cats, fuck like people. Fuck? Oh my gosh, so cat people... Okay, so this This is... is not a documentary about my grandmother? No, it's not a documentary about your grandmother. It's not a documentary about that girl in high school who grew up to live by herself with 30 cats. No, it is um, it is a remake actually. Now this is directed by uh, Paul Schrader, who you may know as the guy who directed American Gigolo. He wrote Taxi Driver. He wrote Rolling Thunder, which is one of my favorite movies ever. He's had a huge and storied career in Hollywood, and he's had a, a, a an unfortunate recent career with the Canyons and trying to deal with Lindsay Lohan and all. This just go look up the article about that. It's it, the just the article about what happened with that film. It makes the film's existence worthwhile. I've had that film sitting here for a while, and I'm scared to watch it. Me too. Me too. (laughs) Absolutely. Well, now, this is a remake of a film that actually came out originally in the 40s and was directed by a French director named Jacques... uh, Tenor? Tenor? Yeah, the guy who who did uh, 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 Carnival Souls, I believe, right? Yes, uh, that is Jacques Tenor. Yeah, that's that's correct. Uh, So, the thing about this film, about Paul Schrader's remake, is that it really suffers from... 
being associated to the original film. And that was a lot of the criticism for the remake was that it was nothing like the original film. And Schrader was like, yeah, I didn't want it to be. <laughs> like, I, I, I really didn't, didn't care if this movie resembled the original at all. He just wanted to tell this particular story. And I gotta say, like, this is, a, this is a release by Scream Factory, first of all. So I was obviously going to watch it. I was obviously really intrigued to see, you know. It goes without saying. You know, even if you don't like the movie that Scream Factory puts out, you're interested to know why they picked this one. You know, you, so you sit down and you watch, like, okay, let's. And the thing I knew about this movie was the David Bowie song. Sure. Putting out fire with, uh, gasoline, which was used in Inglorious Bastards. Tarantino used it for the scene where she's putting on her makeup before she's going to the big movie premiere. Oh. Yeah, okay. it's and he uses that really well. And in this film, it's it is similarly used very well. It's, first of all, it's a great fucking song. It's an incredible song, and it's his lyrics, Giorgio Moroder's music. Like I, I was on board just from that. I mean, th- plus it was executive produced by Jerry Bruckheimer. It has a great cast, including Natasha Kinski and uh, Annette O'Toole and John Hurd, and like a lot of people that you've either seen or ha- heard of. Um, what could go wrong? Yeah, <laughs> what goes wrong? is that this film is really more about sort of psychosexual desire and what it what it means to be human through uh you know intimate relations with other people and it's it's a it's a super erotic thriller so I, is it like a like in its sense of being very weird and horrific aspects but still an erotic thriller would it be like a companion piece to Cronenberg's Crash I was actually going to say that yeah it's actually it feels more like a Cronenberg film than a remake of a classic horror movie and I'm not, and that's not a criticism. I'm just, I'm just pointing out that again, but, if you're going to see this because you really like the original, you're going to be disappointed. By the way, speaking of the original, it wasn't Carnival Souls Turner directed. It's I Walk with the with the Zombies. Oh I'm yes, of, so. yeah, I Walk with the Zombie is a great fucking film. Um, but I, I, I was interested in what the movie had to say. So basically, the story is that there is a woman who finds out that she's part of this ancient tribe of people who, whenever they become sexually aroused, turn into panthers. And That's the, the hottest thing I've ever heard. Well, but then the only way they can get back to being human is they have to kill. Oh, and that's not as hot. Yeah. And the only way around this, apparently, and this is where you're really going to go, ooh, is that they have to mate with each other. So, Nastasha Kinski starts off this oh, film. Oh, you mean in the family? Yes. Oh, well, that's... Nastasha Kinski starts off the film finding her long-lost brother, played by um, uh, Mac- uh, Malcolm McDowell, who looks like he's 12 years old in this film. It's kind of creepy. When was this made? Uh, it was made in 1982. Wow. 1982. Actually, funny enough, the same year that The Thing came out. And this is also an old RKO film that they're, right. that they're, you know, remaking. Um, so yeah, it's, the story itself is really, I mean, it's, it's similar to, like, the basic setup is kind of similar to the original. But from there, it really just explores the relationship between, uh, Nastasha Kinski and John Hurd as they try to have a relationship. And she keeps putting off them being physically intimate because she knows what's going to happen. She'll turn into a panther and eat him. Yeah. Yeah. And and just about, like, the, the violence that sort of... I guess it's the film is really about sort of how the two natures of, like, you know, the lust for blood and the and the lust for flesh is kind of, you know, similarly tied up in the, in the primitive part of the brain. Yeah. And it's interesting on that level, but it's so bizarre. And it's a really weird one to sit through. It re- but I, I do have to give this movie credit for all of its fantastic practical effects they didn't use a single ounce of of cg in this film and the transformation sequences are really bizarre and cool um and natasha kinski was really hot back oh she was gorgeous absolutely she's and and it's funny because she she's the daughter of klaus kinski who looks like something max shrek threw up the idea of someone having sex with klaus kinski is not dissimilar to the feeling that i get from thinking about like 
brothers and sisters having sex when they're right? turned into giant panthers. It's just eerie. Something, it makes you want to shower. It's something's wrong there. Absolutely. <laughs> Something went terribly wrong. <laughs> Something went terribly wrong. And then, you know, it all wraps up in actually what I found to be a very satisfying, but still very strange ending. And I think that's really, this is the, a film for people who really want to find those gems from the eighties who do as much to buck the, the idea of what's mainstream as possible. This movie does a lot of things that are very bold, and especially for uh, the time, like very the huge risk taking. But I, I don't know. As a, as an overall film, I, I wasn't thoroughly entertained by it. It didn't grab me the way I thought it would. But there are parts of it that I think are really fascinating and make it well worth your time. I just and if you're going to see it, like this Shout Factor release has a really, really strong uh, Blu-ray transfer. Not one of their best, but definitely a strong Blu-ray transfer. My only complaint is there's not. I wanted to hear more about this movie. Like, there's so much about this film that intrigued me. I wanted to hear more about what was going on. And there are interviews, but they're they're all very short interviews. And unfortunately, the one with Nastasha Kinski is almost worthless. It's almost like she doesn't remember the film, and she's being prompted by somebody off screen to kind of say the things that she, she wants does. wants to remember, pretend like she doesn't remember. Where she's like, oh, yeah, that scene. And then she'll just describe what happens in the scene. It's like, Nastasha, we saw the movie. We know what happens in the scene. Tell us a little bit more. But I did like the interview with Giorgio Moroder and Paul Schrader. I thought they had a lot of interesting things to say. I just kind of wanted to know more about this movie, about this production. So, uh, overall, this is a movie for people who like weird shit. <laughs> like, I don't know. That sounds like me. Yeah. Yeah, I think, I think Cronenberg is actually an apt comparison. Uh, there are some body horror elements to it. And more than that, it's just about tying up the idea of sexuality and horror, which is a huge undercurrent theme. With a lot of Cronenberg stuff, or oh, yeah. in the case of Shivers, an overcurrent theme. I so, mean, it's his current. That's his theme. Yeah, that is the current. <laughs> but yes, that's uh, that's Cat People. And if nothing else, I am definitely going to pick up uh, this soundtrack, which is not just the song, but like Marauder's score throughout this whole film. Fucking incredible. Nominated for a Golden Globe. I want this shit on vinyl so bad I can taste it. <laughs> why does it have to be on vinyl? Why? Because I like the way vinyl sounds. I don't know. Weirdo. I know. Hipster. I know. I'm, I'm weird like that. It needs to be a specific word for vinyl hipster because it never feels appropriate calling a hip- you a hipster. There has to be some sort of ultra specific. It's like, but like, I feel like I collect the shit nobody cares about on vinyl. Like, oh, do you have this album? I'm like, no, but I have this soundtrack for Deadly Spawn. <laughs> and they're like, what the fuck is that? I'm like, I'll be over here. Yeah, but in 50 years, that's the one that's going to be worth a lot more money. <laughs> it could be. Because <laughs> nobody was holding on to those. <laughs> You're like, I have the only existing copy of the soundtrack to the Deadly Spawn. It could be. It could be. I just, I don't know. I like the way it sounds. Fair enough. That's me. But that's Cat People. And from there, <laughs> this is so funny to say. That's Cat People. And now we're going to move on to Dead Weight. So, Chris? Oh, yeah. This is the horror movie I saw. I'm sorry. Hold on. That was a terrible segue. And now here's some dead weight. Chris? Oh. I am sorry about that. I didn't mean to do it. It just happened. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not dead. I just often look that way when I'm on the couch. This is a little tiny indie film that normally would have completely escaped my notice. But quite frankly, apparently this, uh, Anna Cool News was one of the people who promoted the hell out of this film after seeing it at a festival. And I, I, a festival I was not at, or at least didn't see it at. Uh, and this is a movie where off the bat you're going to go, uh oh, when it starts, because it's clearly filmed with a cheaper camera and these are not, you know, we're not talking the higher end of the acting spectrum here. Or, or, in fact, people you've ever heard of. <laughs> wow, you are selling the hell out of this movie. But ultimately, it's a zombie film where you never see zombies outside of, like, well, you do at the very final bit, but really it's just kind of, like, it's 
it's the zombies are almost the third man of this movie where it's a survival film that kind of half of its story is told backwards mm-hmm. with these two characters. Uh, Charlie is the main character who is in a relationship with this girl, uh, Samantha, but she is living in Minneapolis. Well, he's, I don't, I don't think they ever say specifically where he is, but somewhere a few cities away, basically. Uh, and they're clearly having problems because of it. And there's a phone call where she says, look, I am going to take, I had an internship, but now I'm going to take a promotion to actually work there full time. There's problems with the relationship with that. But this is the story of their relationship, which is the one that's going backwards through time as every time it comes back to it, it's a little bit earlier and we see more and more that defines who they are, how they got to get together and what eventually their problems stemmed from. Uh, the other story is the end of the world, which, which is going forward, which starts with him getting a phone call from her saying something. Haven't you looked at the news? Shit's going on. There's some sort of terrible virus. People are dying everywhere. And Minneapolis has been quarantined. And me and my boss are going to try and get out through a canoe. And he's like, look, go to this town and I'll meet you there. Flash to like him waking up like a so big jump forward in time. And he's time jump. with a bunch of survivors who are wandering around like in The Last of Us, <laughs> you know, with a bunch of shovels and and rakes and stuff. Whatever uh, you Hiding out in an abandoned house. Go, like, oh, did you have the first day dream again? And as the film goes along, it becomes clear that he is manipulating these people and telling them lies in order to get them to the town where he promised this girl he would meet her. Because he's just, regardless of the problems of their relationship, he is the ultimate clinger. He's <laughs> so, a clinger. He's a stage five clinger, is what he is. <laughs> uh and, you know, you're still rooting for them. You want to root for all these people during the zombie apocalypse, but but what makes this movie stand a little bit apart from well for one thing like i said it's not a horror movie in a traditional way the real horror is that the movie makes you start rooting for this guy and slowly starts revealing what an absolute piece of shit he is like just human garbage <laughs> uh, and it, like story-wise though it leads to a pretty interesting place i you know you are interested you don't want to turn it off you're even though with all the amateur niche going around around the filmmaking aspects of this i mean it's very cheaply shot is very mediocrely acted uh at points very noticeably so uh, you can't help but be interested because you're like what is this movie doing with telling us a zombie story without ever showing us zombies it's not about the zombies much much like i guess any zombie good zombie movie is not ultimately about the zombies it's right a metaphor only in this case is just literally no zombies on screen until like like so this is about capitalism seconds. no this is this is about vietnam I don't know what this is about. This is about a total Part piece time? of shit named Charlie oh. and uh the fact that he's willing to do almost anything it takes, even in – I guess it's about how people are just so single-minded. They're capable of just huh? like ignoring everything going on around them because of saying? their own personal shit. I'm going to kill you with a shotgun <laughs> to the head, Brian Salisbury. <laughs> I'm sorry. I wasn't paying attention oh, to what shit. you were talking about. I'm out of cells. <laughs> no, no, wait. Hold on. I let me let me uh, mix this green and this red herb real quick. Oh shit! Ah, oh, there we go. I feel better now. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I like this, and it's certainly interesting. And I think like this uh, this writer uh, whose name I'm having trouble finding because there's only the IMDb page and not much else about it. But is it did something interesting here? They probably should get a chance to go on and and do something else uh, with a little bit more money. This is a good indie film. It's just not going to have legs to go much further than that, unfortunately, because mm. it's for people who like discovering little 
hidden gems of indie films. I mean, like last week we talked about a film that was attempted indie horror called uh, The Happy House that I thought was absolute fucking garbage. This is an indie horror film that actually does work, tries something different within a familiar genre thing. And by the end, I was like, all right, you got me. Good job. You know how I can tell this is an indie film? Because if you go to direct co-director slash co-writer Adam Bartlett's page, yeah, his credit in uh, director, writer, actor, producer, and sound department are all this film and nothing else. Yeah, this this is one of those films where you have four or five people who wear several different hats, and I'm not criticizing. That is very admirable. Um, that is somebody working their ass off to get this made. And like I said, he put together a, a, a reasonably solid, entertaining film, considering there seems to be no budget and they're working with all you know relative amateurs i was pretty entertained by it if that if you're curious if you're curious to see a zombie film that's done differently than you've seen a zombie film before and there's certainly lots of people have tried this little film for like no money did it a lot better than most of those bigger budget ones that usually star danny trejo or somebody like that (laughs) yeah no absolutely yeah well, from there, we're going to talk about Die, Monster, Die, which I believe is German for The Monster, The. <laughs> is Wait, what? Sideshow Bob jokes. Okay. Uh, so, Die, Monster, Die is another release by uh, the Scream Factory. And I was really excited to see this one because this is like 1960s uh, Boris Karloff, and it's an adaptation of H.P. Lovecraft. It's an adaptation of... The Color the, Out of Space. The Color Out of Space. And right off the bat, even if you didn't know that, you would get this, you would have the suspicion that that was going on when the film starts with a young man getting off a train in a station called Arkham. And you're like, hold on a minute. Hold on. <laughs> Red flag. Cthulhu flag going up. Uh, so this is a film about a guy who is summoned to this tiny town in pastoral England, uh, by a girl who he went to college with who lives in this creepy ass manor with her creepy ass parents. Uh, but she basically says like, hey, come and visit. And he goes to the town and he's like, Hey, I need to get to the, uh, I need to get to the Whitley place. And everyone's like, go fuck yourself. And he's like, oh, okay. Uh, well, uh, I guess I'll just walk there. They're like, literally a guy, a cab driver puts his suitcase in the car. He gets in the car and he's like, where are you going? The Whitley place. Cab driver gets out, throws the suitcase out and goes, you're on your own and drives away. Jesus. Like they really hate the Whitleys. Or and at least the Whitley place. The Whitley place. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So he gets there and, uh, he meets, uh, Naum Whitley. Nahum. I don't know. It's a very strange first name. Played by Boris Karloff. He's the patriarch of the family. Uh, he's in a wheelchair. He's very much like, who are you? You need to leave. And then uh, come running down the stairs is beautiful Susan Whitley, who in this film is sort of the Marilyn Munster of the house. Huh. Like everybody else in this house is like seriously afflicted or looks like they've been in horror movies for as long as these actors have actually been in horror movies. And then here's just like bright, perky, blonde, like, cute girl coming down the stairs, like, hey, it's good to see you! And it's like, oh, you're Marilyn Munster. Isn't that always the case in these things? Like, what was it, the, the Adams Family? Didn't they have, like, a one girl who was always there who was just totally normal? Did like, they? Yeah, I think they did. I, I only I only remember the Munsters having Marilyn, but the thing in, in the Munsters is they always make jokes that she was the ugly one. And it was like, oh, oh that's, that's what it, yeah. It's yeah. like that Twilight Zone episode. Get anyway. it, get it. Get it, get it. Um, so yeah, I mean, so it kind of plays out a little bit conventionally at that point. He meets the, the matriarch of the family who's very sick and she tells him a lot of cryptic things about like, you need to get my daughter out of here. Something is very wrong here. So it becomes a mystery of what's going on in this house. A lot of strange occurrences. And what I will say for this film is it's, it gets a little procedural. Like if you've seen a lot of these sixties era, supernatural, old dark house type movies, you know, there's a formula and it follows the formula for a while. 
And then it gets to the point where I feel like it, it actually ventures into the Lovecraft. Because it's, it's not a direct adaptation by any stretch of well, the imagination. No, I don't think they've ever done a direct adaptation not of really. Lovecraft. Not really. Not that I can think of, anyway. They, the, like, and again, I'm going to say this. The best Lovecraft adaptation I've ever seen is In the Mouth of Madness, which is not technically a Lovecraft adaptation. No, it's like, it's a Lovecraft it's an fan tribute. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's, it's, Love, it's Lovecraft fanfic. Um, but yeah, so as it gets to the point where it's actually venturing into some of the Lovecraft territory... It's where the movie gets really twisted and cool. Hmm. Where it, it really takes a turn where you're like, I was not expecting an old Dark House movie to have this shit in it. And the problem with the film is that once you get to that point, you're all excited about it. They choose to focus more on sort of the family dynamic and, and the family drama and how the supernatural things are affecting the relationship between the people and the family. Seems like an odd choice for a film called Die, Monster, Die. Yeah, and I mean, and, and there are, I'm not saying there aren't supernatural elements from that point. I'm just saying it seems like what was really interesting, the stuff I wanted the movie to focus on, it kind of just left out in the garden shed, literally, because okay, that's where it is. What I'm curious about is, so far you haven't mentioned an, a monster. Yeah, the monsters are... Okay, so I don't want to give too much away, but let me just say that there is a, a there is a thing that the patriarch of this family finds that ends up, as you would expect in a Lovecraft story, opening up sort of this uh, like dimensional gateway, and then you have these creatures. But we literally see the creatures like in a garden shed, and it's like, oh shit, these are really fucking weird and cool. And it sounds like a prequel to Phantasm. Yeah, it's like I want to, <laughs> I want to see more of this. And then all of a sudden, it's just like they leave the garden shed, and those monsters are never discussed again. And it's like, but, but I want it more but of the, the monsters. So instead, we it's couldn't like, afford them. So instead, it becomes about the monsters that the father and the mother become, which are legit. I mean, they're not metaphorical. They are legitimate, like, monsters, but they're just not as interesting as the ones they just kind of left out in the garden shed. So overall, I think the movie fails because it didn't, didn't quite deliver on what it, it promised, both by claiming to be a Lovecraft adaptation and then introducing an element that I thought was really twisted and, and weird and cool, and then just kind of like, eh. It's it's just kind of over. Now, oddly, for a Scream Factory, it doesn't have much in the way of extras. No, it has one really terrible trailer. And by terrible trailer, I mean there's no voiceover. There's no text on the screen. It's just a random assortment of clips strung oh, together. And it's like, what, is this an actual trailer? Or is this something somebody did for the Blu-ray? Like, it's 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 pretty... In terms of extras, this is pretty terrible. Um, but I don't know. I'm still happy I saw it. It's American International Picture. I try to see as many of those as I can. Yeah. And it's Boris Karloff. Even and it's Boris Karloff. In the later part of his life when he wasn't exactly churning out a bunch of high quality stuff. Yeah, no uh, doubt There were that. a few good ones. And certainly the, we know this title for no other reason from like white zombie songs. True. <laughs> and and this director went on in 1970 to direct the Dunwich Horror, which was another American International Picture's attempt to adapt know. Lovecraft. Which I've never actually seen the Dunwich Horror. You know, I haven't either. I always I always get told, asked about that when we were talking about Lovecraft. Like, yeah, just for some reason I never got around to that one. But I've, I've always heard that it, too, is not a faithful yeah. adaptation. No, I wouldn't expect it to be. All right. Well, well Die Monster. There's a short film called Call of Cthulhu that was made a couple years back by students or something that yeah. I'm told is the most honest and true adaptation of a Lovecraft story, but it's just a little short black and white film done as if it's an archival piece. Right. No, it was on it was on Netflix for a while, but I don't think it is now. Yeah. I'll have to track that down. Well, that's Die Monster Die, and from there we're going to move on to Charlie Countryman. Oh, boy. Talk about your Lovecraftian packs with the devil. Whoa! This is the latest Shia, 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 Shia LaBeouf movie. Shit-eater LaBeouf. Man, look at that picture of him there. He even looks like he's possessed by the devil. Um, as something is, I'm sorry, I'm just gotta start. We, we just gotta talk about, like, this guy's, like, hate packed with the world that he's got going on here where he just like exploded with what an asshole he is in the last month. He got caught plagiarizing. And then 
his apology letter was plagiarized from another source, and then his apology letter for that apology letter was plagiarized from another source. Stealception! Which led people to look into some other stuff he had posted, and it turned out pretty much everything he's done was stolen. Jesus. And, and I like, didn't hear that part. Oh, yeah, yeah. Like, there was all this poetry and stuff on his website that turned out to be, like, barely rephrased lyrics from bands and stuff. Good God! Yeah, like, he is just, you're right, he's like an onion. You peel it back and you find out even more of it is rotten. Yep. And his response has been... To be a complete prick about the whole thing and now to retire, not from acting, from public life. Oh no, what are we going to do without Shia LaBeouf streets? I just go, you know what, who gives a fuck, man? You were forced on us as it was. Like, you came out of nowhere and they're like, it's Indiana Jones' son. And no, no, I, no, 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 no. <laughs> Wait, yes, yes, you're right. And you know, here's the guy who fights the Transformers. Like, nobody wanted him there. We wanted the actor we knew and liked in these big films. But no, you're telling us, no, we swear. You're going to love Shia LaBeouf. Seriously, you're going to love Shia LaBeouf. And being the Transformers movies, it's like, you realize, congratulations, you're the most prominent thing we don't care about in a Transformers movie. Right? <laughs> uh, you know, I'm more attracted to Megan Fox's thumbs than I am to her. <laughs> oh, man. Damn. Just telling you. Wow. Uh, yeah, I know. And yet still. Still. Yeah, no, I can't disagree with you. <laughs> you know, and the shame is that it's not even that he's a terrible actor or anything. It's just... He's a little one note, and it was the fact that, yeah, he was just kind of foisted on us culturally that I know that I personally resented. And I'm kind of glad this Schadenfreude to find out that he's a massive, insane prick. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I just kind of looked at I always looked at him like, eh, he's that guy. I, I don't, I don't know. I never formed a, a relationship with him one way or another or any kind of feeling toward him because he was just always that guy from the Transformers movies. Yeah. Right? Yeah. You're like, eh. I mean, I know, what was it, Holes? Holes was, okay, Holes I actually did like. He was a kid actor, and yeah. somebody somewhere in this Amblin camp decided that this is, he's going to be the, the next big thing, and, and, and manipulated him into a position of high visibility. Didn't work out, <laughs> and Not now so he's much. appearing in, in films like Charlie Countryman, which barely got a theatrical release. This came out in 2013. Surprise! It's a, described as a romantic comedy action film, I guess that's technically accurate, where... <laughs> Uh, Shia LaBeouf, he's, uh, the beginning of the film is he's in a hospital while his mother, played by Melissa Leo, is dying. You're like going, wow, shortest cameo ever in a film, and she's on life support. <laughs> so we take it off. But they take, it's a metaphor for Shia LaBeouf's career. I know, right? And they take her off, and then, like, apparently it's made clear that Shia LaBeouf, when people are dying, he can talk to their ghosts before they pass on to the other side. Like, he's got a little Sixth Sense thing going on, which they even, I think, at one point even referenced the Sixth Sense specifically. They're like, ah, see, we're self-aware. But this has nothing to do with anything else in the movie other than to, sort, to serve as a purpose to move the plot along and to have a circular ha ha wah wah joke at the end with Melissa Leo, who in the beginning of the film tells him, look, you've got to get on with your life. Don't worry about me. What you need to go do is go to uh uh oh shit i can't remember the name of it now not barcelona but uh another city that's not as good as barcelona <laughs> and he's like sheboygan he's like what well, that sounds like and i forget what it's called right now but uh uh and he's barstow like, in new jersey no 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 it's another like like romanian type shit uh it's in in romania somewhere i don't know but uh anyway the upshot is like he goes there a bunch of crazy shit happens that is not generally considered to be good uh and the end sees his mom's like oh i'm sorry i totally meant to say barcelona wow bucharest bucharest you went to bucharest that must suck <laughs> i actually had to look up romanian cities to right. remember bucharest uh but when he gets there well on the way on the plane he meets another dead guy a guy next to him who's all excited to go home to see his his daughter dies on the plane next to him and then his spirit tells him you need to bring this silly hat i bought for my daughter to her and 
give her this message in Romanian, which he does sort of, uh, played by Evan Wright, Rachel Wood. And they start to, there's obviously something going on there. And the mean, meanwhile, uh, he's formed a friendship that a hostel with Rupert Grant, another Weasley. Hey, another Weasley turns up in this episode. <laughs> and, uh, I can't remember the name of the other guy, but one of the guys from, uh, uh, the Inbetweeners, one of the kids from the, that show, the Inbetweeners. Yeah, yeah. Who go out and party and look at, it's basically an excuse every time they're together to see tits in this movie. Every, every scene with them is like pretty much, okay, now we're going to look at strippers. Uh, okay. but Shia LaBeouf, Charlie, gets caught in a bunch in between a bunch of bad situations where it turns out that the dad, the dead dad of Evan Rachel Wood, had blackmail on Evan Rachel Wood's ex-husband, played by Mads Mickelson, Hannibal himself. Yeah, because that's the kind of person you want to piss off. He's a complete psycho who not only, even though long since Evan Rachel Wood's character has broken up with him, he insists they're not divorced, even though they are. <laughs> And that she's still with him and anybody who gets near her, including Shia LaBeouf, is going to die horribly, painfully and slowly. There's also another gangster played by Till Schwieger, who uh, is also after this blackmail and uh, this piece of blackmail, whatever it is, and wants to find out as well where Mads Mikkelsen is. Everybody's threatening everybody. Shia LaBeouf is the guy running around who just all he wants is to form a relationship with Evan Rachel Wood, despite the fact that. What are you a fucking idiot? Come on, move on. You're 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 not even supposed to be here today. <laughs> move on. There will be other girls. There's no such thing as your one and only true love. You're gonna be fine. Yeah. Move along. Please. I like how you you used a Kevin Smith movie to reference a Shia LaBeouf movie. So you <laughs> you used a guy who had a complete public meltdown to reference a movie from another guy who had a complete public meltdown. Yeah. You like it? You like how that happened completely by accident? I do. I don't know. This film has got some colorful cinematography in it. It's got some entertaining music. It's got some entertaining cameos. Vincent D'Onofrio plays a small role in here as well. Uh, but ultimately it's a mess. I mean, seriously, like <laughs> the, 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 the turning point for the plot is that he can talk to dead people, which is never explained in any way, shape or form, has nothing to do with the rest of the story in any way and he continues to like barely acknowledge it's even a thing he just goes falls from stupid decision to stupid decision in bucharest uh being chased by these complete psychos really the only thing to recommend about this film are some of the performances by the other characters especially mads mickelson who is genuinely frightening as this crazy gangster like oh my god totally different type of role from hannibal and he is scary in this i mean yeah there's a lot of nudity like i said there's a sequence he and rupert grant and the other guy are in the hostel and they all take acid or i'm sorry ecstasy and decide that everyone in the place is naked even though they're not but in their eyes they are so there's all seen them walking around this hostel where everyone's both impossibly naked and impossibly gorgeous as you were you know, yeah. you don't want to watch a bunch of girls with like you know well, tennis ball Europe. and a sports sock hanging down, you know? Well, it's Eastern Europe, so I figured there would be at least some some gorgeous women a there. Anybody who's hitchhiking around and staying in hostels is probably not that bad looking. Yeah. You know, they're but, young and good shape. What are you going to say? Uh, yeah, this is a mess. I can't recommend it. It's not the terrible. It's not terrible. Like, it's not like, oh, fuck that movie or anything like that. It's, it's okay, I guess. Mediocre. But it's not bad enough that you can recommend it either. Where I you like can how, go, it's so weird, you gotta see it. I like how Shia LaBeouf looks like Jim Croce on the cover of this <laughs> Blu-ray. Yeah. Yeah, they kind of make him out to be like, they want to make him feel like kind of a countercultural type of, like, yeah, like that type of hero. Like the smart, uh, literary guy. And it's just, eh. I don't know. The original title is The Necessary Death of Charlie Countryman because this 
starts with supposedly seeing the death of Charlie, which, you know, come on. Every time I try to tell you the words, they weren't so sweet. So I'll have to plagiarize you in a tweet. <laughs> That's my Jim Croce uh, Shia LaBeouf song. You're welcome. Yeah. Apparently, oh, I forgot. The big controversy about this film was that from Evan Rachel Wood, because there was a scene where uh, Shia LaBeouf was going down on her, and this was cut out of the film, and she had a fit about it. She's like, oh, fine. You can show all these naked women everywhere and girls simulating giving blowjobs. But, oh, a guy goes down on a girl and she turned into this whole feminist rant. And I don't think she's necessarily wrong, but at the same time it's like, really, now you need to be banging the gavel that loudly over this one. Just, there, there, there are other more terrible attacks on, on women going on around the world than editing out an oral sex sequence. Maybe they cut it out because he was just bad at it. I don't know. Like, they're, Who knows why they cut it out? I, I don't know. Uh, the quote was, she said, the scene where the two main characters make love was altered because someone felt that seeing a man give a woman oral sex made people uncomfortable, but the scenes in which people are murdered by having their heads blown off remained intact and unaltered. Society wants to shame women and put them down for enjoying sex, especially when, gasp! The man isn't getting off as well, except that women are sexual beings, except that some men like pleasuring women, except that women don't just have to be fucked and say thank you. We're allowed and entitled to enjoy ourselves, and sometimes we turn into giant black panthers and kill them afterwards. <laughs> <laughs> Putting out fire with gasoline. No, I, I really think that has more to do with the fact that we, like, in America, we still have this weird prudish approach to, or prudish view of, as far as the media goes and as far as censorship goes, a very prudish uh, view of sex, whereas violence is like, yeah, sure, whatever. Yeah, we don't even want to acknowledge that there's anything sexual about anyone yeah. on film sometimes. Especially you know? when it comes to, like, you know, the... Um, the the Powerpuff Girls? <laughs> oh, that, that was really weird. But, like, the MPAA does not like... Like, they're far more forgiving of violence than they are of sex, and that's been that oh, yeah. way for a long time. I mean, look at regular network TV now, which practice. I mean, like, shit, when I watch The Walking Dead, which is a network, it's cable, but still, it's not a pay station, where there's stuff as gory as you can see in any horror film, like, just outright extended scenes of people ripping out intestines and body fluids spraying everywhere, and you can't even show the suggestion of a side boob. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, that, there you have it right there, and it's it's a really weird situation. Now, that being said, I do agree with Butters from South Park that the ratio of exposed breasts to uh, soft, floppy wiener in Game of Thrones is, is pretty divergent, so it's, it's, I get it. It's pretty far off, and besides, who wants to see Hodor's wiener? <laughs> <laughs> there's that great, if you, guys, uh, if you guys can look it up, there's this great video of these women... Uh, I think it was on, like, Funny or Die or something. Yeah. These women that are demanding more cock in Game of Thrones. <laughs> it's very funny. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty hilarious. Well, from Charlie Countryman, we're never going to sleep again. Oh, I'm sorry. We're going to talk about never sleep again. Oh, I don't see what you did there, actually. But anyway. <laughs> I didn't really do anything there. This is Never Sleep Again, colon, The, the Elm, Elm Street Legacy. Legacy. Which is, for those of you who felt like the previous editions of Nightmare on Elm Street movies did not have enough behind-the-scenes extra features, here's four fucking hours of it. It is a four-hour documentary produced by Heather Langenkamp herself, who of course played Nancy in 1, 3, and what is it, 7? 1, 3, and 7. Yes. Uh, you know, I mean, the most iconic person in the Nightmare on Elm Street series, other than Freddy Krueger himself. Truth. Who... Is also functions as the, uh, the narrator here. And there's four hours that goes through from the very beginning of, uh, Freddy all the way to, like, you know, the dealing with the conventions and things like that and fandom. In fact, 
uh, a prodigious amount of bonus features are included here that, that focus a lot on that fandom in question. Uh, some of the weird shit that some of the later actors go on. I'll show you this picture here. Yeah, what happened Leslie to Leslie Dean, who plays Tracy, who's like this total weirdo goth queen. So everybody in this documentary when they're interviewed is, is you know, if they're not normal, it's just kind of in the things they say. Whatever. Clue Gulliger is never going to give you a straightforward interview. He's a, he's a whack job. Yeah. And that's great. But like... Tracy Dean is the only one that shows up in makeup where it looks like there's a fake bullet wound in her head, and she's cradling what appears to be a female sex slave, and there's, like, blood splatter behind her on the walls. It's like, nobody else who were in these movies seems to have been affected the way you have by them. Or maybe she was just fucked up to begin with. Could be. It was just, it was like... I guess fucked up is is, is relative, but... That's true. I mean, Um, we're probably pretty fucked up. Yeah, I'm sure she looks at us and goes, what's wrong with those fat guys sitting around drinking beer and never getting off the couch? Well, nothing self-explanatory. We're having an awesome time. <laughs> <laughs> we win at life. That's what's going on. Uh, but this is surprisingly a very entertaining documentary. Totally. It does not have a feel of those. A lot of those little EPK things you see on the no, no, no. It, it It's packed with love. And I mean, if there's only, only complaint I really have about this is that. Did you not even try to call Johnny Depp and Patricia Arquette? I or, thought about and that. And assume that they wouldn't have been interested? Because they're really the only very noticeably missing people from this. And they both owe their entire careers to the Nightmare on Elm Street films. I feel like they had to have called. Like, I I, I don't feel like, especially when, you know, Heather Loggenkamp is the producer of this and she was in the first one with Johnny. I feel like she had to have at least tried to get him. Um, Which so. makes me say... Kind of fuck you if that was the case, and he just could not find a window to come to let them talk to him for ten minutes. Hey, about he's very this. busy putting on hats and playing the same character forty-two times. Well, hold okay? on, I have to remember what it's like to pretend to be either drunk, insane, or some combination of the two. Yeah, exactly. And actually, I got to say this. So my this is a lot. You know, like Chris said, it's not like the EPK stuff. This is more like uh, Return to Crystal Lake, which yeah. was the documentary about the Friday the Thirteenth franchise, which is. My preferred franchise. In fact, I didn't even get into the Freddy movies until much, much later. And even then, I, I wouldn't say I got into them in the sense that I was a big fan of them. There were certain elements like I really like Dream Warriors a lot. And I like a lot of elements of the first one. And I love New Nightmare. I think New Nightmare is a fucking brilliant film. But this documentary, even with the feelings I have about the other sequels, was still fascinating. So much interesting behind the scenes uh you know, photography and, and the stories that these people were telling. Just and funny stories. Very funny stories. Uh, you know, the one thing I'll, I, I'll say is that, and I can't, I haven't seen all the Nightmare on Elm Street films, and I'm the opposite. I was like, didn't come to for, for, uh, Jason movies till later. Just not as much into the slasher thing. But the, night, the first Nightmare on Elm Street frightened the shit out of me. And that was the first time I was scared by a movie and went, Hey, that was fun being yeah. scared and got really into the Freddy character. But the, the, some of the later movies, like the two before, uh, the last one that Wes Craven came back to direct again. Yeah, uh, four and uh, five, or, or five and six are pretty shitty. They're, they're pretty shitty. And this film talks about pretty much all the sequels in more or less glowing terms, finding just the good to talk about, except for two. Yeah. Which is hysterical and worth watching this for alone, as they call it, like, the greatest gay horror movie ever made. <laughs> you know, even watching it for the first time, I was like, there's something else going on here. What, what's the deal? And actually, I think the, the, the criticism of the movie that's actually really apt has nothing to do with any kind of, and from what they still claim to this day was an accidental, like, gay vibe that the movie gives off. But the, the bigger criticism that really I think is apt is the fact that you have a scene where Freddy just shows up to a bunch of teenagers at a barbecue and none of them are asleep and it's like, 
wait a minute, that doesn't make any fucking sense. Yeah, I mean, the idea being in the second one that he was actually trying to get into the real world by possessing uh, a teenager and taking over his body, which was an interesting idea, but it kind of took away what was scary about the Nightmare on Elm Street totally. films and just made it seem silly. And he's because you literally have Freddy Krueger running around going bah! like it, like it's a, you're like at a Universal Halloween Horror Nights, yeah. and Freddy's like, bah, I'm coming to get you. I mean, that being said, there's some good effects in that one. Sure. Thing. And listening to the stuff in the documentary is hysterical, especially the lead actor who was gay. They didn't know he was he didn't know he was gay at that point, and he's very gay. Now. Yeah. And he is very funny talking about this movie, and it's funny everyone associated with it like. I don't think we meant for this to be gay at all, except for the writer who goes, oh, yeah, I totally put all that shit. <laughs> <laughs> and it's, it's interesting because that director, Jack Shoulder, has also made Alone in the Dark, which is a really cool kind of twist on the slasher film from 82, and then The Hidden, which yeah. is a really so, awesome sci-fi yeah, horror film. Went on to do good stuff. Uh, and this talks to all kinds of really interesting people. Uh, you know, like I said, don't get me wrong, just because uh, 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 Patricia Arquette... I don't know what the fuck she was doing, but, you know, what kept you? Isn't that that weird kind of lame psychic show you're on over already? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Except for her and Johnny Depp. I mean, Robert England, of course, is in this a lot. Wes Craven, Robert Shea, the producer, who has lots of interesting stuff to say about his contentious back and forth relationship with him and Wes Craven. Yeah. Uh, uh, You know, tons of like the the. The actors all the way through the series, but John Saxon is in this a lot. Who is like love John Saxon? Dad. Oh, he's he's amazing. Clue Gallagher, uh, Alice Cooper, the band Dokken, who of course were the musicians who did Dream the song. Warriors. Yeah, exactly. Love uh, that fucking Rennie song. Harlan, who directed Elm Street Four. Yeah. Kane Hodder, who played Jason Voorhees for Freddy versus Jason. Uh, actually, no. He the, the reason they talked to him actually is because he didn't play. Uh, oh no, Jason. that's right. He didn't. Yeah, and that's and that's what they were talking to him about because he was kind of put off by the whole thing because yeah. he kept thinking that he would be the one to play Jason in Freddy versus Jason. Uh, and I'm glad they do go all the way through to Freddy versus Jason. Oh yeah, because as well they should. I really like that movie. Like I know it's not uh, like super intelligent or overly competently made film. It's a horror movie. It is fucking Freddy versus fucking Jason. It gives you everything you could possibly want from that setup. I don't necessarily agree, but it is not a terrible film. (laughs) (laughs) I'll go that far. And I do like that that Rennie Harlan talks about the fact that it's like, you know, a lot of people forget that he even directed a Nightmare on on Elm Street film. And the funny story with him is where he like, that was so early in his career and he just literally planted himself in Bob Shea's office until he agreed to let him. Because he was poor. He was like, it, like that, he said that movie rescued him from poverty. The only other film he'd made was Prison, which we've actually reviewed before, yeah. which is a really fun little made-for-nothing-but-doesn't-show-it-at-all horror film. Uh, and yeah, that's how he got started, where he went on to make lots of other movies that disappointed us. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Rennie. We appreciate it. I don't know. This is a, a good and fun documentary. There's so much. It's four hours, and you'll be entertained for the for the length of it, even if you haven't seen all these movies. I actually th- didn't even realize it had been four hours. Like, I put it on late at night. I was just watching it all the way through. And there's hours and hours of extra stuff on the second disc. Extended interviews, like like two hours almost of extended interviews with people. Uh, a look at apparently a, like, what was going to be this documentary, but a, a, a documentary called I Am Nancy that looks like was just kind of abandoned to make this instead, uh, but it's like a first look at Heather Langenkamp's I Am Nancy. Speaking of things that almost were, one thing I learned in this documentary that has now become a personal quest of mine, yeah. 
Peter Jackson wrote a draft of Night- or Nightmare on Elm Street Part 6, which yeah. is Freddy's Dead. Well, yeah. Well, was it Part 6? It was Part 6. Okay, because there was that thing where they were like – there was that one – oh, it was Freddy vs. Jason I'm thinking of, where there was like 18 different oh, Freddy yeah. vs. Jason scripts by all kinds of famous And I want to read all those. I, <laughs> I want to see the one with the ending where Pinhead comes up. But yeah, That's the best of all possible endings they could have done. The Peter Jackson script for Friday the 13th Part 6, apparently the concept was that Freddy, because of the previous films – had become such a it's it's actually like planting the seeds for how meta new nightmare became it was like yeah. basically freddy had become such a joke in the previous films with all of the you know stupid things they were having him do that he was a joke in dream world and kids in elm street were actually taking sleeping pills to put themselves into comatose states, go into their dreams, and beat the shit Just out of kick this. the shit out of Yeah, he was like this Freddy sad Cougar. drifter in Dreamworld who then accidentally ends up killing them, and that's how he, like people start fearing him again. I'm like. Where the fuck can I find this script right the hell now? I'd be curious to read it, that's for sure. It's I weird, want to read this. It's a weird idea that I can see why the studio demurred, but I want to read it. But it's a lot better than what they actually went with for Freddy's Dead, let's that's be honest. True. That's not so good. <laughs> uh, there's also a look at, uh, apparently this guy who collects all Freddy stuff and stole a glove, or, or paid for a stolen glove from the first Nightmare on Elm Street, and there's some... Still controversy about that. Look at a lot of the ultimate fans. Uh, the guy, um, uh, Sean Clark, who has his show Horrors Hallowed Grounds, which has lately been making rounds on a lot of these horror Yeah, it turns up everywhere. Where he goes and takes a look at all the locations from the classic films and where they are, you know, what they look like now. It's actually a really cool little show with this guy. Uh, he actually gets to walk through a lot of the stuff in the first movie with Tina, the actress who played Tina, uh, from Nightmare on Elm Street. Oh, the nice. one who dies by crawling across the yeah, yeah, yeah. basically. Oh, still the best kill in all so the Freddy fucking the, good. in all the Freddy films for me. Look at Com- Freddy and comic books and novels. A look at the music. Uh, a look at uh, the the creator of the posters for five of the seven films. Uh, highlights of all seven films put in one short, like cliff notes. A Nightmare on Elm Street in ten minutes. Some of those are going to be real short cliff notes. I mean, there's so much extra stuff on here. Dream Child's going to have thirteen seconds of that. This is the essential thing for someone like companion piece for anyone who loves the Nightmare on Elm Street films, and it, it's just really well put together and fun. So. Cheers. Definitely. Cheers to you, sir. Really, really enjoyed this. Highly recommended. Yeah. Uh, actually, looking back through, this may actually be my pick of the week. Yeah, I'm going to agree with you. This is my pick of the week, too. Pick of the week. Never sleep again. And from there, we're going to talk about Best Man Down. Best Man Down. Best Man Down. Sounds like a James Brown song or something. Yeah, it's kind of does. <laughs> uh, but it's not. It's the whitest film you've ever seen. <laughs> <laughs> the whitest film you've ever seen. Uh, this actually is, is, you know, it's another little indie film, but not like indie like Dead Weight. This is indie like everybody you recognize, everybody you kind of like, but they did, weren't able to get big enough of a leading man to get it into theaters. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I'm saying. Uh, this has Justin Long. I love Justin Long. It looks like he's gotten kind of a scar lately. Have you noticed that? I it's have not noticed between that. his eyes. I don't remember seeing it before. Weird. But uh, he and Jess Wexler, who people probably best known from playing the lead character in the comedy horror film Teeth, although she has been in a number of films since then. But let's face it, she's always giving me the girl whose pussy could bite off dudes' dicks. Yeah. Uh, they're a couple. In the beginning of this film, we see they're getting married. It's a big, fun, crazy wedding in Las Vegas. Uh, they're, the best man is played by Tyler Labine, who I, to me, is the fu- one of the funniest big fat guys working now. Like, he's kind of Dale from Tucker and that. Dale. Yeah, Dale from Tucker and Dale. He's charming, but he's that guy who, he's the guy who's your friend since you were kids, who is completely obnoxious drunk, 
who, but who is still good enough at it and smart and funny enough that people kind of put up with them. Yeah. Regardless, you're like, that guy's going to probably die young. And lo and behold, the night of the wedding, he dies young. Oh, no. <laughs> they find themselves in a position, uh, Justin Long and Jess Wexler's character, Scott and Kristen, where they have to use their money for what's going to be for their honeymoon to pay for his funeral. And along the way, they find out looking at his phone, there's a line they use in the trailer. He's like, well, look at his cell phone and see uh, who's in there so we can contact them all about this. It's like, yeah, there's only six numbers in them, and two of them are pizza delivery places. And he looks at her angry. He's like, no, I'm not kidding. They really <laughs> <laughs> But the one number that they don't recognize, they try and get in touch with. And it turns out, is it, you know, it was we see ahead of time as it keeps flashing back and forward through time so that Tyler Labine's not only in this movie for five minutes, ultimately – is that uh, he formed a strange, kind of a strange friendship with a high school girl uh, way up north that happened because she saved his life when he was up there ice fishing. Uh, hmm. And they developed this sort of very strong friendship because her mother and her mother's boyfriend are just so fucked up, like meth addicts. And, you know, her mother thinks she's doing the right thing for and caring for her, but really she's so fucked up she doesn't know what she really wants. Weird. And Tyler Bean puts himself in the position where he wants to protect her and he wants, she's really smart and he wants to take her out of this situation and put her into a good, bring her somewhere where she'd go to a good school, you know, yeah. move on. She's re literally ready to graduate two years early from high school and go to college. She's that smart. Nice. But her mom... No money, no intention of, you know, getting Letter, rid of her daughter. Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. And all this becomes clear, like I said, in flashbacks, and then her eventually revealing this to Justin Long and Jess Wexler as they get to know her. And you've got one of those stories that's kind of bittersweet funny at points as you learn that the big, fat, funny guy actually had an incredible amount of hidden depth to him and was actually much more interesting than even his best friend, Justin Long, could have thought. Now... Yeah, it's well put together. There's no real problems with this film, except that it there was no chance it was going to get a theatrical release, ultimately. Right. And it is one of those, it's another one of those little slight films, like Enough Said, where you go, that was cute, and it was interesting, and it had some solid performances in it. And I'll probably largely forget about it in a few years. Yeah, uh, it doesn't have a lot of staying power. But I think that it's a good step along the way for uh, Tyler Labine, who I really think is going to go places. I think he has just got so much natural charisma. He's so funny and talented, and it's a good role for him here. Uh, Justin Long, I don't know what happened with that guy. He thought he he seemed like he was on the the A train straight to to being a bigger star, but he seems to just be kind of dwelling in this middle ground. And just yeah, it's really unfortunate because you know, and I know this isn't important to someone's career at all yeah. but he's also a super nice guy i've heard that yeah i actually uh the the time i met him was really awkward because he was outside the highball and he was talking to two ridiculously gorgeous chicks but i still just wanted to come up and introduce myself and say hello and he literally like saw me in the per in his periphery stepped back from the two girls put up a, like a hold on a second finger to them was like hey what's up how he's like what's going on i'm justin i was like did you really just interrupt your conversation with two ridiculously hot awesome. girls to talk to me i was just like I was like, I'm Brian, you get back to what you were doing. I'm, I'm, I'm out of here. <laughs> yeah, I, you know, I don't know. I see him in good stuff, but it's usually other people's stuff. Like, he had a nice role in four episodes of New Girl, if you remember. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's yeah like, no, he was he'll great on that. He'll appear stuff that's good, but then also he's in a bunch of shit. <laughs> you're like I, early in your career it seemed like you were going to be huge and I still think you got it in you this is better than a lot of the stuff you've been doing Jess Wexler of course is still just getting started she's that she's got that weird sort of awkwardness to her that seems like you know what I mean she's like yeah. she's not beautiful but she's I don't know maybe it's that kind of um what's the Francis Ha girl uh 
Oh, uh, Greta Gerwig. Yeah, she's got kind of a Greta Gerwig quality. I gotcha. Seems like a real, a real girl as opposed to a gorgeous Hollywood starlet that sure. if she works with that could actually go places for her. But huh. I don't know. We'll see. This is an interesting along the way career move for all these actors more than it is a great movie in and its own right. And it's, it's like I said, only people I wouldn't really recommend it to are people who maybe just had a good friend die. <laughs> It's not a feel better about that type of film because if you look into their past, they're probably nowhere near as nice a guy as Tyler Levine's character was here. <laughs> You're like, oh my god, there was tons of child pornography on their computer. <laughs> no disrespect to your friends, but they're probably not as nice as Tyler Levine. They're, they're monsters. Just <laughs> they're just monsters. They're monsters. They've killed and killed, and though they would have killed again. Hey, speaking of monsters, why don't we wrap up this show by talking about Bad Milo? Did you get to see Bad Milo? I saw Bad Milo, I can't remember which festival it played, but I saw it, I think it was South By that I yeah, saw it. it was South By it played it. Uh, let me let me tell you this, Chris, I get stressed. I get stressed a lot. Yeah. I have a lot of things that, like, literally get me, like, so frustrated and so stressed that I feel like there is some sort of stress demon living inside me. So I'm so glad somebody made a movie about that exact concept, <laughs> because that happens to me on a regular basis. It's like somebody took this idea that you're right. Like, it's like that thing. I think a lot of people share that feeling like, oh, you literally can make your stomach hurt badly because of stress. It can yep. fuck up your insides. I'm worried about you. Go see a doctor. Bro. No, it actually happened to me when I was working my day job, which was like, I, I'm stressed now, but I, it was nothing compared to being stressed and miserable, which is what I was at my day job. And I literally had uh, instances where I had to take multiple sick days because I had so many stomach problems I couldn't explain. And then once I stopped, you know, working there, they went away. Right. So I, I completely buy into this. A lot 100%. of people they internalize that. I do it in my in my neck, like a lot of yeah. different places where my neck gets so stiff when I'm stressed out that I'm like, ah, I can't sleep. Got to take a bunch of Tylenol. This is about Ken Marino, who's like a Brian type guy. And gets it all in his stomach. And I guess when they're writing this, they're like, how are we going to do this story, this real human comedy about, like, people who internalize stress like that and how you fix it? How are we going to, how are we going to tell this? So where are we going to go with this? It's like, I know, what if we make it an actual monster? What if an actual monster exists inside this guy and then gets out of him and goes to kill the people who are stressing him out in his life? Oh, I like that. That's good. Wait a minute, how does he get out of There's him? only a couple options for how this thing can get out of a man's body. And, and um looks like we're going to have to write more poop jokes. Yeah, no, that's that's entirely the point where I kind of got done with this movie is the concept is, is decent enough, but they literally, it devolves into a bunch of shit jokes. And it's like, I, really? Like, I understand that the thing comes out of his ass and there is the inherent, like, you know, shit joke there. But it's like, does that have to overwhelm and dominate the the comedic narrative of your film well i think that is ultimately the problem i i don't know if i'm gonna go so far as say it completely overwhelms it but it's certainly it's just gross out jokes that are like after the initial shock of it get over it move along with yeah. the story because what you've got is a cool little remake of basket case if you chose to go that way what you do instead is like yeah just keep coming back to the oh it's gross he comes out of your ass yeah, we get it. He comes out of his ass. All right, let's move along. It's just not that funny. It's a shame because there's a lot of good talent in here. Gillian Jacobs from Community plays Ken Marino's wife, Sarah. Stephen Root, 
course, who from any number of fantastic things plays his weird hippie dad, Roger. Peter Stormare. God, I love that guy. You know, always Big Lebowski is always my role. I think about it. We have on the money, Lebowski. <laughs> uh, plays Highsmith, his therapist. Mary Kay Place is in this. Patrick Warburton. God damn, Patrick Warburton. Uh, that's, that's a hell of a cast. Thank you. I was just trying to prompt you to do that. You're welcome. It's actually a great cast. And there is some genuinely funny stuff in here, but ultimately, this, these are people who decided, fuck it, let's just aim for making this a midnight cult film and nothing but a midnight cult film. And sometimes that's, I, when films get there organically, it's all, you know, where it's like, no, I was trying to make art and, and I guess it has an appeal to this crowd. That's pretty cool. When they're setting out to do this, it's like one out of every 500 times do they actually get something quality. Yeah. And I, I know that I heard people were very entertained by Bad Milo when they saw it in the theater where we're recommending it to me. I just, it's just not my kind of thing. I can't get past that amount of poop jokes. Yeah. I just, it just, it's so childish. I think it's, it, it becomes a problem when instead of, um, nodding to midnight cult films, you aim to be a midnight cult film. Exactly. I think that's the difference between somebody like Tarantino and somebody like Robert Rodriguez. Tarantino nods and homages, but still works very hard to try and make what he's making quality and make it his own. Whereas Rodriguez's machete stuff is just like, I'm just going to aim low because these movies were bad. That I think I, you know, I think my movie is. And it's like, that's not the same thing. I, and this, I don't know much about this director here, Jacob Vaughn. Do you know if he's done anything else here? I Because uh, feel this like... feels like a first time uh, piece working with a bunch of comedians who he was letting just kind of do what they they do. I believe this is his first feature film, so okay. I wouldn't be surprised. And Ken, Ken Marino, like, I'm, I'm hot and cold on Ken Marino. Like, some of the stuff he's in, I'm like, you know, that was a good role for him. And some of the stuff I'm just like... I'm starting to think that the, the whole shtick about you kind of being a douche is just because maybe you're good at it. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Like, it's to the point that I'm just like, it, it puts me off of him. Like, I don't I don't really know if I'm behind you or not. Actually, he, he apparently did a film called The Cassidy Kids that a friend of mine worked on, strangely enough, Brian Poyser. But huh, that's entertaining. Anyway, the weird. weird connections you find. But this feels like one of those guys. Hasn't really been through the studio system yet. Got lucky enough to work with some really good people on this silly little script and kind of let improving to some degree take over this very slight little story. Um, I know I've used the word slight to describe three films today, but yeah. in this case, it's slight because there's really not much going you on. You are not slight on using slight today. It's a guy, a monster coming out of a guy's ass that kills people. Guy's a nice guy, doesn't want the monster to kill people, but is told that you can't kill the monster. You have to make peace with it because it will always be part of you. Yep. This movie's alternate title was Butt Baby. Lots of extras, though. Commentary with the actors, extended outtakes, extended dinner scene, a bunch of different delete scenes. A look at the puppeteers behind Milo. Uh, several takes of the same shot that are called Raw Take to try and give you how hard it was to actually animate this thing. Uh, interview with Ken Marino. Uh, various EPKs and trailers. I mean, it's actually, for, you know, for the money, you're actually getting a lot of bonus stuff with this. And I know there are people out there who just love the shit out of this film. Honestly, if you like, if this sounds like the sort of thing that you normally would like, then you'll probably like this. It's just for me, even from the description, I was like, oh boy, this is, I can, I can tell you right now, I'm probably not going to be the audience for this movie. And right. sure enough. <laughs> <laughs> and that's exactly what didn't happen was my liking this film. Uh, yeah, so that's gonna do it for this episode, but before we go, as we always do, I think it's time that we talk about our, uh, giveaway! And with the Oscars... <laughs> I was waiting to see how long you could hold that. That's I could go said. longer, but you look bored. That's what she said. Um... <laughs> sorry. <laughs> she has said that. She has. Said that. 
with the Oscars coming up, I actually thought it would be fun to uh, to give away a copy of one of the Oscar-nominated scores from this year's bunch, and that is Stephen Price's Gravity score. Ooh, which is an excellent score. It absolutely is. It's it's fucking phenomenal. And we have a, uh, a CD copy here of the, the Gravity score by Stephen Price. Highly recommended. Really cool to, like, just kind of put on and zone out for a while, because it's... I mean, obviously, a movie about being, you know, severed from a space station and kind of being adrift in space. It has a very, uh, a very uh, affable zone out quality to it. No, I liked it a lot. It was one of my top choices for uh, scores this year for best of the year. So absolutely. So as you know, we do sort of a, a writing prompt giveaway here via Twitter. So you're, first thing you want to do is make sure you're following one of us on Twitter. That's at one of us net. And then for this, you know, this doesn't have anything to do with gravity, but I've always wanted to see people do it. Come up with a tagline for digital noise. So, uh, you know, as we sign off, we would say digital noise, colon, whatever, whatever you say. So digital noise, the other white meat, except not that because we can't. Not that's that, not no, ours. No, that's not ours. We can't do Although that. Although we are the other white meat, we can't trademark that because it's not ours. Add a digital noise and a smile. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Yeah. yeah. Um, a little dabble, do you? Yeah. Start your day off with a dollop of digital noise. <laughs> you know. But Digital none of those. Noise. It's what's for dinner. It's what's for dinner. Yeah, you know, they're all food related. I guess we're hungry because all of the ones I came up with are food related. Look at us. We we would keep going with this and eventually move on to beer, and that's about it. Yeah, you know? exactly. I think it says really obvious things about us. So, <laughs> so just come up with a, a tagline for the show, something that you think uh, in 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 you know champion brevity, and and come up with something that really describes the show, and then just hashtag that. Uh, gravity score giveaway, and we'll pick our favorite. That person will win. There you go. That's all you have to do. You know, even if you lose, you still win. Yes. By we had, sending us taglines. Yeah. No, we had a, a lot of really great responses to our last giveaway, and I have a lot of fun reading what you guys put out there, so definitely keep those coming. But, uh, yeah, that's it for this week. We are done. We're out of here. But but I had more movies to talk about. That's why next week exists, Chris. That's I, right. That's another thing. And every week after that until the end of time. Why? Well, I guess you're going to go out to your house. It's directly connected to that thing at the front of the house. People keep calling the front door. I don't know why. Yeah, I feel like I need to create a habit trail from my house to your house so that you never have to go outside. If it keeps being icy like this, we need to create like an underground Disney-like tunnel between our houses. Totally. Heated and all that. Let's get to work on that right now. When is the budget going to support that? (laughs) Budget. That's cute. We think we have one. All right, well, that's going to do it for Digital Noise. And just remember, guys, no release too big, no release too small. From Criterion to Catastrophe, we review them all. 